In this weekend's episode, three segments from this past week's Washington Journal from its annual Holiday Authors Week series, which features writers from across the political spectrum. First, Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr., Emmett Till's cousin, and co-author Christopher Benson discuss their book, A Few Days Full of Trouble, Revelations on the Journey to Justice for My Cousin and Best Friend Emmett Till. Then, a conversation with nationally syndicated columnist Cal Thomas about his book, A Watchman in the Night, on his 50-year career in journalism. Plus, NPR Morning Edition co-host Steve Inskeep discusses his latest book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Before we get to this week's episode, we want to take a minute to ask you for your help. Your financial support will ensure that C-SPAN can continue to produce podcasts that inform you about national politics, introduce you to the latest nonfiction books, and provide valuable historical context to today's news. Make a donation today and be a part of C-SPAN's future. Visit cspan.org slash donate. First, we examine the story of Emmett Till with Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr., Emmett Till's cousin, and co-author Christopher Benson and their book, A Few Days Full of Trouble, Revelations on the Journey to Justice for My Cousin and Best Friend, Emmett Till. Uh, A lot of stories and history behind the death of Emmett Till, Reverend Parker. What was the purpose of your book in writing it? To bring clarity and to uh, kind of put to rest some of the uh, misnomers about the story of Emmett Till. It's been a long time, so we thought that the book would bring some clarity. Uh, Could you elaborate then of the events that you think needed clarifying? Uh, There were stories out as to what happened at the store. Uh, I was eyewitness. I was interviewed 30 years later. So the stories that were put out there were told, but not told by eyewitness. And Mr. Benson, as you helped co-write the book, in the effort to, to bring clarity and elaborate on some of these stories that we've heard over the years, what what role did you take? What what did you think was the, the, the largest part of the task that was facing you? Well, as Reverend Parker said, we wanted to get the truth out there. And I had worked on a book 20 years ago with uh, Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, and discovered that there were so many things that, as Reverend Parker said, uh, had been misreported. And um, what we found, I'm a journalist and a lawyer, <laughs> so um, I had a critical assessment of some of my sisters and brothers in the profession who were basically reporting on each other's stories and not going back and and doing independent research. That's what we wanted to do, certainly to uh, delve into Reverend Parker's memory as a, a longtime friend, the best friend of Emmett Till and his cousin, person who was at the house the night of terror, the night they came to take Emmett Till away. Um, but also we worked with the FBI during the last four years of the investigation into the lynching and were able to help inform the investigation and also take information from the in, uh, the investigation in ways that enrich our story uh, in as presented in the book. It's uh, material that's never been told before. Uh, a little bit from the book uh, for our audience. This is from A Few Days Full of Trouble. The story of Emmett Till today is about power over the story itself, the way the story is told and who gets to tell it. After all these years, Bobo's truth had not been has not been told, not completely anyway. This book is an attempt to accomplish that and in that to achieve some measure of justice, if only because we clear the record of so many errors and out-and-out lies in a number of the stories about Bobo, the Emmett Till 
I knew so well. Reverend Parker, what's the common narrative that you hear when it comes to Emmett Till at the store and his death? And what's the truth and reality as you see it being closely associated with him? Well, what I found out is that when the story first happened, this thing first happened, we felt so helpless because we didn't uh, have uh, control of the media or exposed to the media even. When you're interviewed 30 years later, and uh, only we can understand what it was like to have him live that time. And then all of a sudden, I have a chance to tell my story, to get the truth out. And I, I think uh, the people who are there to hear my story now and and uh, things have changed. We've made a lot of progress. We've come a long ways and we have a lot of work to do. Uh, the uh, Reverend Parker, this story centers at the events at the store that took place concerning Emmett Till. Yes. Tell us your account of what happened and how that differs to what you hear about the account. Uh, everything that I've heard is from people who were not there. The, 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 tr- the truth what happened is that I was in the store. We went there. Of course, Amy Till and I traveled to Mississippi together. And I was there at the store. So I went in and I'm purchasing some things. And while I'm in the store, uh, Amy comes in and I said to myself, I hope we got a yes sirs and no sirs because I knew the South and I, I was born, my formative years were spent there. And I was wondering, I knew it was very serious to them to get those things right. So I was wondering if he had that together. So we were in there together. Nothing happened. So it was told as to what happened. I left him in there, and shortly after, within a minute or so, my Uncle Simeon, who was 12 at the time, uh, came in with him. Nothing happened when they were there. We left out of the store. Things that said happened, that never happened. They never asked us. They never interviewed us. But they told the story, and first impressions are lasting. So we felt so helpless to try to correct those things. Now we got a chance to correct it, and people are listening because they want the truth. And Mr. Benson, then, from your from your point, as far as the events itself, uh, talk a little bit about what you've heard said about it and then what you believe the truth is. Well, we all have, uh, have been exposed to stories that uh, that rose out of that, that experience. One of the leading stories was the, the story that um, Carolyn Bryant told. She was a, a woman who um, claimed to have been um insulted and accosted by Emmett Till and we know that wasn't true we very meticulously through uh the FBI investigation and through our own research were able to trace all the events that flowed from that night uh to uh to actually the most recent experience with Carolyn Bryant as she was attempting to tell her story in a book and we were able to document that she lied we were able to document some other things that have never been documented before with respect to her involvement in the kidnapping of Emmett Till. And the important thing here is that after four years of closing out this investigation, the FBI was able to validate the uh, the the eyewitness testimony of Reverend Parker. Uh, and it's in the report that was issued December 21st uh, through the Department of Justice that Emmett Till did not do all the things that he was accused of doing, that he was only in there for a brief time, as Reverend Parker has uh, has uh, stated and that uh, everything else was a lie. So that's the important thing about this this book. And and the interesting thing for us is that there was so much willingness to accept the stories that were told at the time of this, this young African-American kid. He was barely 14 years old. He had only turned 14 a few weeks before he traveled to Mississippi. A child who was brutally tortured and lynched over the course of several hours 
for um, for just you know being a black kid basically, uh, and and um, infringing on on uh, the 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 culture of the South and not showing the proper respect perhaps uh, while he was there. So the important thing here is that the traumatic memory that comes forward in this book is on a parallel track with the investigation and the TikTok of our ride along with the uh, the investigation and the FBI over the course of four years. We're able to reveal things that have never been seen before. And, and we think that's an extraordinary uh, contribution to the con- the to the, um, the the conversation, the national conversation we're having right now on race. Uh, when it comes then to those uh, that evidence that you found, when it comes to Carolyn Bryan's story, what was the main piece of evidence that to you showed that she was lying? Well, we saw the statement that she made to the defense lawyers, the lawyers who were representing her husband. And her brother-in-law, the two accused killers, actually they were confessed killers in the end, um, just uh, a few days after uh, the arrest of these uh, these two assailants, these two murderers. And the story she told then was different from the story she told uh, a few weeks later in court and the story she later told as she was preparing her manuscript. So you can see how the story developed. The other part of it that we saw was in looking uh, through, uh, doing a deep dive through the records, We saw that at one point there was an investigation that was launched in 2004. And in that investigation, she told the FBI agent that she couldn't remember anything. And only uh, a month or so after that, she began working on her book where she seemed to remember quite a bit, at least uh, uh, the story that she wanted the public to know. So we talk these days about uh, the so-called Karen, (laughs) the person who accuses uh, people of black people of doing uh, something bad and and wrongly accusing them. This is the original Karen. (laughs) In fact, we believe that uh, from now on, we should probably refer to people who falsely accuse um, black people of, of some wrongdoing. We should refer to them as Carolyn because this is the original story that um, that that started it all. Reverend Parker, you have a paperback version of this book coming out. Uh, what will be added to it as a result of uh, from the initial printing? What's added to it and for the public to see? I think it's going to be the same. Chris can ad- address that as well. Well, we, we do uh, um, edit the uh, the afterword because Carolyn Bryant uh, died uh, after the uh, the hardcover was released. So we updated it uh, to also reflect on uh, accusations, uh, attempts to uh, arrest her, indict her uh, f- between the time of the publication of the hardcover and the publication of the paperback. So we do update it in that regard and put it in context so that people can understand um, and, and also develop a critical assessment of the stories that they hear, the stories that they read, stories they're exposed to on social media, so that we begin to ask critical questions about the information we're getting. That's the important takeaway, um, we believe, from this story. Also, the the resolution uh, that uh, Reverend Parker was able to experience just in getting at the truth, finally, after nearly 70 years of living with this story. That was Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr., Emmett Till's cousin and co-author Christopher Benson, talking about their book, A Few Days Full of Trouble, Revelations on the Journey to Justice for My Cousin and Best Friend, Emmett Till. Next, nationally syndicated columnist Cal Thomas talks about his book, A Watchman in the Night, What I've Seen Over 50 Years Reporting on America. I want to start off by asking you, why do you refer to yourself as a watchman? Why that term specifically? 
Well, I got it from uh, an Old Testament verse when the uh, ancient Israelites posted a watchman on the wall at night after the gates closed to look out for bad guys, invading armies, uh, looters, criminals, those sorts of things. And uh, I just thought it would be a nice metaphor for what I've tried to do. My column will be 40 years old next April in uh, looking at culture and politics and uh, and uh, you know using a standard to measure right from wrong, good from bad. Uh, these things touch on the economy, foreign policy, domestic policy, things I've written about for almost 40 years. And uh, what I presume and what my standard is uh, for writing is there is objective truth. There are things that are always right and always wrong. Uh, if you, you know, 1924, I look back in my, a column coming up Thursday, uh, 100 years, uh, nothing has really changed. Uh, Calvin Coolidge uh, reduced taxes and regulations and cut the size of government uh, and produced an economic boom known as the Roaring Twenties. We are still arguing over these things today. And the amazing thing about it is that human nature never really changes. We're arguing about the same things we argued about 100 years ago. Immigration, national debt, uh, crime, uh, so many other things. So we change our politicians, but we really don't change the policies all that much. And what my book does is go through uh, about 40 years of uh, what has been happening in the last four decades in America and uh, takes little snapshots uh, of these events. It will be a reminder to some people who lived through those years. And I think, I hope, it will be an education to, to younger people who have not. How did you decide what columns, what issues um, to include in the book as you reflected over your career? It's a great question, Tia, and uh, I had to go back through almost 4,000 columns that I've written, if you can believe that, and I picked out the ones that uh, I thought were most significant. I mean, 9-11 was an obvious one. Uh, many other things, uh, uh, the economy, uh, immigration, and I put them together in uh, little excerpts and then comments by me, modern comments on, uh, on those various uh, issues. Um, one of the things I'm very proud about and I've tried to maintain throughout my journalistic career is friends from all political persuasions. I'm, I was very honored that Tom Johnson, who was then the publisher of the Los Angeles Times and opened the door for me to be a syndicated columnist, did the introduction to the book. I have endorsements from Skip Gates of Harvard, who's a friend of President Obama, and I would say would probably be on the more uh, liberal side, Democrat, uh, all the way to the right of Mike Huckabee, the former governor of Arkansas, and Pat Sajak, the, the host of Wheel of Fortune. So I've made friends on all sides, and even though I have strong opinions, I've tried very hard not to denounce anybody uh, for their personal views. So before we get to the phone lines, I want to ask you, you... Write in your book how you approach writing your columns, and I want to read a little bit of an excerpt from that. You write, the goal of my columns is to remind people that immutable truths exist and to ask them to consider even recent history in which certain programs and policies, such as tax cuts, less government spending, fewer regulations, and moral boundaries, contribute to the preservation of our liberties. Football fields and basketball courts are defined by boundaries. If a nation loses its boundaries, it will eventually cease to be. So when I read that excerpt, I had a, a lot of questions, but I guess I want to start out by what do you mean by immutable truths? And why do you consider things like 
Well, you talked about less government spending, tax cuts, fewer regulations, mm-hmm. but you also uh, put in there moral boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you just explain a little bit more about your what you meant by that? Well, if you look at what is happening now in the country with a $33 trillion debt, almost $34 trillion, the open border problem where we are being flooded by uh, people from all over the world. I think I saw 120 countries are coming here with uh, no regulation at all. And then you look uh, at a a nation as far as moral boundaries have been uh, uh, exceeded. Uh, I remember something the uh, late Roman Catholic Bishop Fulton Sheen said many years ago. Uh, he, he asked the question, how do you define a football field by its boundaries? And he said, we, this was 30, 40 years ago, he said, we, we are exceeding those boundaries in personal relationships, uh, people shacking up today, having babies out of wedlock, uh, the, the STD problem, uh, unwanted pregnancies, uh, millions of abortions. Uh, it, we just, you know, drag queen story time in kindergarten. We just seem to be living in an era where anything goes. Uh, I remember something G.K. Chesterton said that the danger when men stop believing in God is not that they'll believe in nothing, but that they'll believe in anything. There has to be a standard. Otherwise, uh, moral chaos breaks out. And all of these things have contributed to the decline of nations in the past. Debt, open borders, loss of a shared moral value system. And uh, I argued in a previous book uh, that uh, we are facing all three of those simultaneously. Uh, the average age of uh, great empires and nation states, uh, said the late uh, British diplomat Sir John Glove, is 250 years. And in 2026, America will be 250 years old. I'm not saying it's going to expire, but I think we are on a track where we are going to be greatly reduced as a nation. And our enemies, Putin and uh, Xi Jinping of China, the mullahs in uh, Iran, are perceiving us now as weak. They say so. Uh, President Xi of China has said that he believes America is a a failing nation and that China will be uh, the new na- uh, international power uh, in uh, in for coming years. And I think the evidence is on his side, frankly. That was nationally syndicated columnist Cal Thomas talking about his 50-year career in journalism in his book, A Watchman in the Night. Next, a conversation with Steve Inskeep, co-host of NPR's Morning Edition and author of the book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Abraham Lincoln is one of the most written about political figures in American history. What makes your book different? I think if it's different at all, it is in the approach. I try to tell Lincoln's life story through face-to-face meetings that he had with people who differed with him, who disagreed with him, who came from different backgrounds, different races, different genders, different points of view, different classes, above all, different opinions about some of the biggest issues of the time. And I think that gave me an opportunity to see Lincoln in action and also gave me an opportunity to try to portray an incredibly diverse country. It was a diverse nation then as it is now. 
You've written several books about American history, including other American president, Andrew Jackson. Why Lincoln and why now? Um, well, the why Lincoln is something that I think a lot of people who study the 19th century grapple with. He's such a giant fig uh, figure. He seems to have his fingers on every part of the 19th century, at least in the United States, and to some extent around the world, the, the course of world history. I had written two previous books about the 19th century, and each time Lincoln was a minor character, uh, which brought me more and more in contact with this guy that I had been fascinated with ever since I was growing up in Indiana, where he spent the majority of his youth. And I finally got to the point where I felt that I might have something fresh and original to say, in spite of the thousands of books that had already been written. And I got to the point where I felt like it fit the news that I was covering as a journalist. Of course, this is a story about the past. I'm not trying to do some analogy or metaphor about the present. But Lincoln was living in a republic, the basic rules of which we still have today. Even some of the buildings where people govern are the same as they were in the 1800s. And so I felt there would be something to learn today about a divided America that would be really relevant. And the more that I got into the book, the more relevant it felt because I was writing primarily in 2020 and 2021 as we were having the pandemic and an incredibly divisive election and aftermath. Where does the title come from, Differ We Must? Differ We Must is a phrase that Lincoln wrote in a letter to the best friend of his life, Joshua Speed. Now, we know Lincoln as the president who preserved the Union in a civil war and who signed the Emancipation Proclamation that dealt a death blow to slavery. He was an anti-slavery politician. But his best friend, Joshua Speed, had grown up in Kentucky in a slaveholding family. He grew up on a farm where his father owned more than 50 human beings by the time of his death. That was the world that Joshua Speed came from. Now, by the time he was an adult, he had moved to the free state of Illinois. He'd become Lincoln's best friend. And he had agreed in the abstract, according to Lincoln, that slavery was a bad idea, that slavery was wrong. But Lincoln says in this letter in 1855, you've agreed in the abstract that it's wrong, but you're not politically serious about that. You're not doing what is possible to strike a blow against slavery politically, and I disagree with your politics. But then Lincoln goes on to write, if for this we must differ, differ we must. And he signs the letter, your friend forever, which really struck me because he's saying this to a guy who is on the wrong side, uh, at least partially, on slavery, this profound moral issue. But Lincoln is keeping the guy close, continuing to work on him. And a few years later, when Lincoln was president, he actually got some value out of Joshua Speed, who was from the disputed state of Kentucky that could have gone either way in the war. And Speed helped to keep that state on the side of the Union. You mentioned this just now, and you also mentioned in the introduction of your book that Lincoln was a politician and, and very much a keen politician. Why was that something so important to highlight? I actually want to read uh, from your book, Abraham Lincoln was a politician. People like to identify him in ways that sound more noble, a lawyer, a statesman, a husband, father. But this revered American vocation is not revered at all, seen as the province of money, power, cynicism, and lies. Lincoln preserved the country and took part in, so, in a social revolution because he engaged in politics. 
I think that a lot of us today have an idea of politics as fundamentally dirty, fundamentally bad, and that when politicians practice their craft, when they build coalitions, when they cut some corners, when they, they make compromises, we consider that automatically wrong. Uh, we're very harsh on our political leaders, and we should be because some of what they do is fundamentally wrong. But as an art, as a craft, politics is what we're supposed to do in a democracy. Politics is what democracy demands. We don't just have two points of view in this country, even though it sometimes seems like it. We have many points of view, possibly millions of points of view, and we should because it's a free society where we all bring our different backgrounds and our different ideas and are supposed to think for ourselves. But we need to build a majority from among all those viewpoints in order to support our basic institutions through which we mediate our differences. If you don't build a majority, you can't have a democracy, and you build that majority through politics, this art that we look down upon and maybe we should look a little more differently at. That was NPR Morning Edition co-host Steve Inskeep discussing his latest book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website at cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television. Live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern.